Well, um, last Tuesday, we have a prayer meeting that happens on Tuesday night out there in the foyer. You're all welcome, by the way, but we had a really good time of prayer. And during our time of prayer, someone came up, a good friend came up and shared with all of us just about how recently he has really had a hard time going to sleep at night. He has night fears, a lot of anxiety. It keeps him up awake. And then he asked, does anybody else have that? And, you know, I, I, I have that. I just, you know, it's that when you wake up and you can't go back to bed or you wake up too early and you just are thinking and you're worrying and you feel like, I cannot overcome this world. feels like sometimes like this, like the world is out to get you. Does anybody ever feel like that? Like there are days when I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. I don't know if I have what it takes. That fear can just cripple you. So last Tuesday, it started for me with the TV and the warning of this massive ice storm. I got my son's old football helmet, went in the basement with a blanket, and I hid down in the cellar till Friday afternoon. And while I was down there, I could hear the wind, and it was roaring like 70 miles an hour, and I kept imagining my trees were being coated with not just one inch of freezing rain, but three to four. And I knew, I was, I knew that that wind was going to knock my biggest tree on our roof. And if I slept up in my bed, I knew that a branch would come down through the roof and pierce me right in the heart. I knew it. So when I finally came up Friday and I saw the sunshine, it felt like I just survived a nuclear winter. But did you hear another one is coming tomorrow? Oh, I don't know if I can take it. So right after this sermon, I'm going to go back down in there, and I'm going to wear shoulder pads this time. I know, I know that sounds a bit exaggerated, but there is some truth to it. Actually, my mom's 85th birthday was last Wednesday, and I didn't go and drive to Cleveland because of those rotten weather prognosticators. I'm scared. Somebody came up to me after the first service. And they chastise me and they say, you need to start practicing what you preach. Remember, you shut down the church about a month ago. <laughs> if you guys followed that, boy, oh boy, oh boy. But everything these days is riddled with fear. It really is. And fear has one objective, to cripple you, to stop you. But today, we're going to learn how to face fear. We're going to learn from a, just a courageous man named Nehemiah. So if you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 6, this chapter is all about facing your fears and how to overcome them and not let them stop you from glorifying God in your life. It begins in verse 1. It says, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project cannot, and I cannot go down. Why should the work Stop while I leave it and go down to you. Four times they sent me the same message. 
And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. And in verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. That's where we're going to stop for now. We'll go through more of it later. But the whole idea of this is they are almost done. So if, you, if you've been following with us, Nehemiah was sent to build a wall. That's it. That's what the story's about. God called him to build the wall of Jerusalem because there was just all kind of turmoil happening in the city of Jerusalem, so they had to build a wall for protection, for security, and for God's glory. But in the means of building this wall, there were outside threats, and there were also inside threats. We get here in chapter 6, they overcame all of them, and they're almost done. All they got to do is just put the doors and the gates. That's it. One commentator said, this is great news for Nehemiah, but it was bad news for his enemies. It was now or never time. If they didn't do something quick to stop the work, the walls would be finished and their objective would be over. So you could say time was running out for the enemies of God. They were becoming desperate. I find this really interesting because usually we see things from our perspective. As Christians, we're always worried we're not going to make it. We're not going to survive. Time is running out. But have you ever realized that the enemies of God are a lot more desperate than we are? Because when their time runs out, it's over. Like, it's over. Even David writes this in Psalm 73. As for me, he's talking about, as for the godly, it often feels like my feet have slipped, like I'm going to fall and I'm not going to be able to get up. I've nearly lost my foothold and I wanted to give up because I envied the prosperity of the wicked. But then I entered the sanctuary of God. He's saying, then I went to prayer. When my heart was overwhelmed, then I went into the sanctuary of God and I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them to ruin. How suddenly are they are destroyed. So you could say it gets precarious for us as Christians, but for the enemies of God, when they feel the pressure, they will make one last attempt to stop the work of God in people's lives. You could say it like this. They will use fear as a last gasp to stop you from bringing glory to God. That's Satan's most powerful tool. In verses 6 and 7, which we already read, they sent this letter. It was an open letter, and this letter basically was slandering Nehemiah. And it said, if you put it in our words, it says, Nehemiah, if you keep this up, if you keep building a wall, we're going to send a report to the big king, and he's going to get super mad, and you don't want to see him super mad. It's, got, it's this weird threat. 
just stop, Nehemiah, and we won't send this letter. Just like this story, Satan will ramp up the fear to full throttle when you are doing God's will, especially if you are succeeding. Because he knows, he knows the ordinary man crumples under fear. But Nehemiah is no ordinary man. Let's first of all talk about how fear works, the anatomy of fear. So a couple days ago, my, my daughter and son were talking. My daughter likes to throw out questions, and she asked my son, what movie would you like to see again if, as if it was the first time you ever saw it? And right away, my son said the movie Jaws. Loves the movie Jaws. And my sister said, why do you like Jaws? He goes, because the first time it was just so scary. And now he's obsessed with sharks and he won't swim in deep swimming pools. It was a great movie for him. <laughs> but it, but that, that is the perfect, so that's the poster of Jaws, and it's the perfect illustration of what fear does. It sends a threat, and usually the threat is vague and monstrous, like it's monstrous, and it's hidden under the surface, and you never know when it's going to bite. That's what a threat is. It's a vague and monstrous threat lurking thing. It's funny, when they were making Jaws, Steven Spielberg had this mechanical shark that stopped working, like it had malfunctioned all the time. So the first half of the movie, he was supposed to be in the movie a whole lot more. But because they, but because they couldn't put the shark in the movie that much, in the first half of the movie, all you hear is the music. Do you know the music? And they said the movie is way more scary than the second half when you finally see the shark. That's how threats work. They hide and they work on your brain. And your brain blows them up to this monster that is going to kill you. And the storm tomorrow night isn't going to have 70 mile an hour winds. They're going to be 250 mile an hour winds <laughs> with 10 inches of ice! Oh! It's terrifying. It's terrifying. So the point of the threat is to get you to cease and desist, to not go in, and to stop. Talking to my other daughter this week, and one of my favorite phrases is, the glory of God is a man fully alive, which means you glorify God when you live with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Fear wants you to stop, because when you stop, you don't bring God glory. But if you look at it, if you look at it realistically, it's nothing like the threat. Actually, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and a sound mind. Meaning, when you start thinking, using reason, looking and assessing with honesty, it's nothing compared to the threat. So the reality of shark bites is, do you know how many, and I was reading in the International shark attack files of last year. Do you know how many sharks killed people in the waters of the United States? How many people died of a shark attack last year? One. One person died. And when you read all the statistics, they say there were 75 million people swimming in the waters last year, and only one died. The odds of somebody being bit are 1 in 11.5 million and the odds of somebody dying in the world from a shark attack 
is 1 in 264 million. It's nothing. Do you know you have a better chance of falling out of your bed and dying? And even worse than that, and this scared Pastor Ken in the first service, you have more of a chance of getting hit on the head by a coconut and dying. <laughs> Ken comes up to me after the first service, he goes, thanks a lot. Now I'm terrified of coconuts. He's a weird guy, by the way. Very weird guy. So here's what I'm trying to say. Fear makes the perceived mountain as something that is monstrous when it's just a teeny, itty-bitty molehill. We always imagine dragons flying in the sky ready to breathe out fire when often it's us being buzzed by a dragonfly while we're sleeping on our hammock. So how do we defeat it? Because I'll tell you, Satan is a master. And we use God's word to defeat it. But we defeat it in three ways with God's word. Number one, we have faith. We have faith in him. In the book of Nehemiah, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6, time and time and time again, he goes to prayer to God. He believed God exists. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is how it begins. Nehemiah 1, 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes upon to hear the prayer of your servants praying. He is the Lord of heaven. Joe, he's the Lord most high. And then if you go to Nehemiah 6, verse 14, he goes to God because God's always watching, and he says in verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Please remember my God because of what they've done. Remember also the prophet Nodiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So he goes right to God with his prayers. Hebrews eleven six 6 says there's two things about faith. Number one, you believe God exists. Do you believe the God we just sang to actually exists? Because that's where it all starts. Some people say, yeah, but I can't see him. I can't touch him. I can't hear him. I wish he'd talk to me. But he's invisible. And because he's invisible, I feel all alone by myself, and I'm not going to be able to take on the enemy. There's no way. I just want to quit. Did you ever just hate living? But God's with me. So instead of fear, just don't give in to it. Look what Nehemiah does in 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4, So I sent messengers to these bad, bad men, and I said, I'm carrying on a great project, cannot go down. Why should the work stop? He doesn't get intimidated. He doesn't quit. Verse 8, he says, Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making it up. And in verse 11, he says, Should a man like me run away? So instead of cowering and ceasing and desisting, he doesn't give in to it because he believes God exists. Second thing about Hebrews 11:6, it says, And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That is amazing. It doesn't just mean that God is. It means that God is for me. God is for me. 
Faith believes He exists and He rewards you. So you can trust His heart. He's for your good. Working in the immediate. It's interesting. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament where these snakes came and they bit all of these people? Because they were sinful. And they bit these people. And they were dying. And so God said, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I got a great solution. I'm going to, I'm going to set up a medical clinic in the middle of the desert and have all kind of poison kits and you can administer them. He goes, no, 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 Moses. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have you build a bronze pole with a snake on it. Okay, what do you want me to do with that? I just want you to bring this bronze pole, set it up high, and tell everybody to look at it. What? That's not going to... God, that's not going to do anything. We need real solutions. Moses, will you do just... Will you trust me and just do what I say? So he brought this bronze snake pole out, placed it high, and he said, just look at it. It says, when they looked up, everybody who looked up were healed. Instantly. Some of you, right now, are going through terrible times in life. You want, maybe you don't have direction for your life. Maybe you don't understand why, why the loss is so intense or the, the suffering maybe painfully you're going through. And there's no solutions. But there is. Look up. For God so loved the world. He loves you. He sent his one and only son. If he's, if God sent his son, won't, won't he also give you all these things? So the whole point is, is with God, he's not only there, but man, he has hope for you. Trust him. Look and behold the Savior who died on the cross for you because he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Second thing you should do is just show some discernment. Don't be overwhelmed by the threat. Don't let your mind go crazy. Don't let it go. Right at the beginning of the chapter, the people, so if you look in verse 1, so you have Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab. So these guys earlier wanted to kill him. You don't trust these guys right from the bat. So these guys come back, and they're trying to play nice guy. They're like, all right, all right. Okay, hey, let's go to, he says here, to the plain of oh, no. And Nehemiah says, oh, no. <laughs> now that's good preaching, isn't it? Now that's good preaching. He showed discernment. He showed discernment. He said, no, you're scheming. And then they give him this letter in verse 8. He goes, you know what, you're lying. He didn't give in to the fear. One writer says, sadly, many Christians today suffer a great deal because they lack discernment. Discernment's the ability to judge matters according to God's view of them and not according to their outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And when man looks at the outward appearance, often they'll follow leaders, teachers, and even friends that sound good and look good, but they don't really know Jesus. Listen to book of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, 12 through 14. He's talking to these Christians who are saved, but they quit moving on in their faith. They actually quit understanding the word of God. So he says, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. 
He says, keep growing, maturing in your knowledge of God and his will for you. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to what? Distinguish. Distinguish between good and evil. We live in a Christian culture that doesn't know how to distinguish anymore. Man, if a celebrity says they're a Christian, by golly, they gotta be. Think. And the way you do this, this is called discernment. Distinguish means discern. There's two coins to discernment. The first is you have to discern what's good from forming convictions. When you form convictions from the Word by meditating, pausing, praying through Scripture, then you will stand strong when people try to manipulate you. You won't give in to it. Look at the story in uh, verses 10 through 13. So Nehemiah 6, 10 through 13. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Methamel, who was shut in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. And let us close the temple door. Sounds really godly. Let's go to God's house and hide. Because men are coming to kill you, Nehemiah. By night, they're coming to kill you. So the shark's coming. Nehemiah, we need to do something. And we're going to have a godly answer. Let's go to the temple, the house of the Lord. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realize that God has not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me uh, because Tobiah Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin. Why would that be a sin to go into the temple? Because the word of God earlier, decades before, a guy went to hide in the temple and he was given leprosy because he was not a priest. Only the priests were allowed in the high place of the temple. He knew that. He's not going to go in there. And he knew that guy's lying because it's against Scripture. It's against conviction. When people want to make you go off their convictions, stand firm and say no. I was watching this crazy interview of this Christian man who was talking to this really pretty girl. Like she's really pretty. And it turned out she was a trans woman, which means he's a biological man, but they put on a lot of makeup. It's funny how people think a woman is someone who wears makeup. Puts on a lot of makeup, and she said, he said, would you ever date a trans woman? And the guy said, absolutely not. She said, well, why not? Because that's called homosexuality. And the trans woman got, I mean, furious. She walked out of the room and she said, I thought you were a Christian, and a Christian's supposed to love all people. See how they want to change your convictions? Our society wants to move us to wishy-washy discernment. That's not true. Second thing we need to be able to discern the bad. It says, be, be innocent as a dove, but wise as a serpent. What does a wise as a serpent mean? It means you realize that liars lie. Liars lie. Many gullible Christians confuse discernment with being negative or cynical or judgmental. You're not judgmental because you don't trust an untrustworthy person. You are not judgmental because you don't trust an untrustworthy person. So you have Sanballat and Tobiah. They were forming raiding parties in chapter 4 where they threatened to kill. Now they come and offer peace? 
Nehemiah would be an idiot to let him in. One person said a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth puts on its shoes. And that was not Mark Twain. Look it up. It's not Mark Twain. Meaning, we so easily believe allegations just because somebody on our side said it. Or somebody in a podcast we like makes an allegation. Allegations aren't truth. They made an allegation against Nehemiah. Oh, if you become, if you become the leader here, you're going to be a king. He goes, I, I know it's not true. But boy, allegations sound good, especially when somebody on your side's making the allegation. Be very careful how easily manipulated you are. It says in Proverbs, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines him. So in other words, don't be so gullible. Third thing is be determined. Not just have faith. Not just be discerning, but be determined. When fear comes, if you know you're on the right course, don't stop on that course. Look at verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, meaning if we frighten them, they'll quit. They'll quit, and it won't be completed. And look what he prayed. It's a short prayer, but wow, what a prayer. Here's what he prayed to God. Strengthen my hand. If you know you're going the right direction, keep going. Be determined. Get some courage. The fear might still be there, but God can clear the storm in a minute, in a second. Jesus, all he's got to do is say to a storm, quiet, and it goes whoosh, silent. How do you do this? How do you stay determined? Very simply, according to here, don't let other people's opinions stop you. All through this chapter, there's this desire to get Nehemiah to quit because it's going to make it look bad on his character. Oh, you're going to upsurp the king. Look at verse 13. He hired this guy, Sanballat, hired this priest to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they'd give me a bad name and discredit me. Somebody's going to give me a bad name. I'm going to get some bad press. I once read a statement that said, no man can lead a work of God if he allows himself to be governed by what other people think of them. Why? Like, here's a question. Why do the opinions of others matter so much to us? I Personally, I have a people-pleasing tendency. And I'll tell you what, I let opinions bother me way too much, especially the opinions of people I know that are against me and are trying to hurt me. It still bothers me. Why? I'm letting them steal my joy. It drives me crazy. I often argue with myself, Chris, what's wrong with you? I don't know what's wrong with me. Well, get, you know, like you've got to argue with yourself. Satan knows which voices will hurt you the most. And he will send people who will argue and belittle you just for the sake of argument and hurting your reputation. And you know the famous saying, when you wrestle with a pig, even though you might win, you will still get dirty. And Nehemiah said, nope, I'm not going to go to Ono. No, no, you can ask me a hundred times. I I'm, I'm know what I need to do, and I'm going to do it. Second thing is I would say this, don't compromise your convictions just to be nice. Come on, uh, Nehemiah, let's reason together. 
Or even this guy, hey, you know, we can go in the temple. Come on, join me. You're not such a bad guy. Even at the end of this chapter, verses 16 to 19, it's kind of a confusing way they wrote it. But this Tobiah, who's a bad dude, apparently he's married to some people that are friends with Nehemiah. And they kept telling these people, who he's kind of family with, to tell, tell Nehemiah to listen to Tobiah. And kind of bad-mouthing Nehemiah to these people. That happens a lot. Do you ever know sometimes family will get people on their side when even they're wrong? It's weird how that happens. Don't compromise just to be nice. People will flatter you to get you to compromise on your beliefs. And then if you don't, They'll slander you. And even when you do compromise, that gives them a reason to slander. It's crazy how it works. Christians today are so quick to compromise because we tend to oversize grace without truth. We think we can bring people into the kingdom through niceness. We've got to be very careful about that. If I could just remove the obstacles by down playing the clarity of sin, it'll make the gospel so much more attractive. So just share the gospel, but nothing else. Often they'll say it like this, just keep politics out of it. A lot of politics deal with, like, biblical moral issues. Just be nice, though. I was reading this story uh, by this guy named Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook was a gay man who was working in Hollywood's in the entertainment industry, and he left that lifestyle and became a Christian. So somebody asked, what changed you? And here's what he said. All my life, I'd been told to be true to myself. But in reading the Bible, I saw that the self is corrupted by sin, and I realized I can't be true to that. That's amazing. He continued, the whole idea of choosing your sexuality is bound in the exaltation of self. It carries the implication of making yourself your own God and putting yourself and your desires on a pedestal and worshiping them. So being true to yourself is nothing short of idolatry. Repentance means to deny idols and that's the whole entire spirit of our age which says, I know who I am and I know what's best for me and that's simply not true. That's powerful that he said that. But the problem is we as Christians, we don't often lead people to that, what I would call healthy repentance because we're nice. This man changed his life because of conviction. And you can talk conviction nicely you know, you tell truth with grace, but you still got to tell the truth. Watch how this ends. This is amazing. So watch the difference between when fear works on a heart and when faith works on a heart. Because Nehemiah did not let fear stop him, we get verse 15. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Okay, now watch. When the Babylonians came to destroy the wall in Jerusalem, it was in 
587 B.C. They came in and they tore down the wall. That's when it was tore down. According to 2 Kings, Nehemiah completed the wall in 444 B.C. That means for 143 years, that wall was down, Israel was humiliated, and they were defeated. They were depressed, they were poor, they were not safe. 143 years, fear kept them locked down. Nehemiah comes out, man of faith, who's like, nope, I'm convicted by this. God told me to do it, I'm going to do it. Even if you want to rip me apart, I'm still going to do it. He gets it done in 52 days. What? So you could say this, one person with faith can lead a whole nation in a moment who have been captivated by fear for years. Fear wants to ruin your life. Don't let it. 143 years to 52 days. That's incredible. 